morning we're going to continue in our series in Ephesians. We've been doing this for a while now. We're going to wrap it up the next three weeks. Uh, I hope you've been reading Ephesians on your own and you've been uh, journeying with us in the Word. I've, I was talking to my brother-in-law who lives out in Colorado. He's training to be a pastor. And I was, I've just been amazed. I always say we're on this journey together. I've been amazed at how much God has challenged me through the preaching of Ephesians, our responsibility to respond to the gospel. We know how to receive it. We know that, it's, that Jesus died for our sins and that this, I, just ours, I was taught that at a camp, actually, when I was 15 years old. I heard the gospel preached. I can be saved in Jesus Christ. And yet this word of, uh, through Ephesians, walking through this, has transformed me in thinking my responsibility in Christ to be more responsive to his gospel in my life. And so I don't know if that's been the experience that, um, that you've had or not, but uh, for me, that has definitely been my experience um, in the word. So we're going to jump into Ephesians this morning. I'm going to ask you to, uh, to join me in prayer, and then we're going to uh, consider what the word uh, has to say to us this morning. Father God, we thank you for this chance to be in your house, to bring glory to your name, uh, to trust you with everything, uh, to pursue you um, daily in our lives. And I pray, Father, that in every way you're glorified. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your living word for our lives today. It would not be a dead thing, a dead book, but a living word to change us, transform us, and empower us to live. And we love you so much. We thank you for the chance to uh, experience you together this morning, and we give you praise and glory for the work that you are doing and continue to do among us. In Jesus' mighty and powerful name, amen. Amen. So we're going to jump in. I'm going to have you read with me, if you would, um, from the book of Ephesians. We're going to be doing a fe- studying a couple verses this morning. It's from Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. There we go. 17 through 20. So you can turn. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one. They're on the end of every row. It should have a Bible there. And you can, um, you can grab one from the, from the chair and read with us. Just a few verses this morning. I'm going to read through them, and then we're going to kind of talk about what they mean for us. Here's what the Word says this morning. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Actually, I want to I stop. You'll remember last week we talked about this idea of being light in the world. Paul said something crazy last week in the letter to the Ephesians. He said, you were darkness, but now you are light. Not you're in the light, but you are light. That in Christ we are light. And he says, In verse 17, therefore, or because of this, or for this reason, no longer be foolish. Because we are light, don't be foolish. The word actually means uh, stupid. It means be longer stupid uh, or ignorant of the things. But rather discern or know what the Lord's will is for your life. And this is what I've been saying about how it's been just profoundly impactful for me to understand. And I hope maybe for you too our responsibility, our ability to respond to Christ in the world now as those who've been saved in Jesus Christ. So this is verse 18, and this is what we're going to spend some time on today. He says, Paul writes and says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. And that's this little verse in here, and we're going to spend, you know, we've been covering big chunks and little chunks of this text, but this for me is one of those little verses in the Bible that just seems like kind of out of place. I mean, Paul's been talking about all these spiritual matters and everything that's happening. And then here's this little verse, he says in in 518, he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. And I think, well, and my question is, what does does, um, drinking have to do with spirituality? You know? 
I mean, why in the middle of a book written to the saints in Ephesus, I'll remind you again, this, as we've studied the word together, Ephesians is broke almost right down the middle at chapter 4, and 1 through 3 is the reality of Christ. He opens the letter by saying, to the saints in Ephesus, the holy people of God, he says. And then, in, starting in 4, he says, because of all that Christ has done for us, therefore, put off this old thing and put on this new thing. And we walked through a lot of that stuff already. If you haven't read that, I would encourage you to go back and read it. But here today, he says, don't be drunk any longer. It leads to debauchery. This little, little verse. And, and, I, and I, 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 I want to stop because you know why I want to stop? I think this is something that is such a struggle for the church. I think we have such a hard time with this issue of, of drunkenness or drinking or abstaining. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to mess this up. And, and, and if you're from outside of the church, you know, and I was outside of the church for years and years, if you're from outside of the church, this is one of those things you go, what are y'all thinking? What are you guys thinking about this? Paul says, be no longer drunk. The word... It has to do with a state of drunkenness, inebriation. I mean, that's what it means. I, I actually did a study. I'm that much of a, of a Bible nerd. I went and looked it up. You know, what does this mean? And it literally means don't be inebriated. Don't, be, don't lose your facilities, right? You, you know what's striking to me about it? This might help it bring into context. It says, which leads to debauchery. Now, debauchery is one of those words. Who knows what debauchery means? Zimari? And then, you know, I looked up debauchery to see what it meant, and it said wantonness. And I thought, well, that doesn't help. <laughs> what is wantonness? I don't even know what that means. You know, the Bible is beautiful because if you dig, it's just pretty clear what it means. It means wastefulness. Wastefulness. It leads to wastefulness. And I thought, well, that's clear. I, even a guy like me can understand what that means. Matter of fact, I remember when I was a young man, we used to talk about this, and we'd say... We're going to get wasted. Isn't that interesting? Young folks don't go to church, and they know what we're talking about. I'm getting wasted. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I remember distinctly there was a time in my life where the sole purpose, the sole intent in consuming alcohol was that, to be wasted. Interesting, isn't it? Paul says, don't do it, church. Saints, holy people of God, this should not be your aim in the world to be wasted, right? Um, I want to uh, I want to uh, step out because Paul Paul anytime he tells us what to stop doing, he tells us what we should start doing. Isn't that interesting? You know, I told you that before. He says, "Stop this, start that." You know, he doesn't just say stop, don't, don't, don't. He says, "Do, do, do." Right? Put these things in there. Do these other things. But I wanted this morning to take a walk through Scripture, and I hope you'll you'll you just walk with me a little bit this morning. But I want to take a walk through Scripture, and I wanted to um, to expound upon a biblical view of of drinking. Now, what's interesting about this. I, I, it's like a New Testament survey, but I did look at the entire Bible, but I want to walk through some things um, about drinking in the Bible. I have a little quiz for you this morning, and I want to show it to you here. If I can pull this next one up. Listen to this verse. It says this. This is in the Gospel of Luke, and this is the way it reads. He will be a joy and a delight to you, right? This is a coming child, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any fermented drink. 
and he will be filled with the Spirit of God even from birth. See, there it is in the Bible. He will never have wine. Isn't that amazing? Who, who knows who this is in the Bible? Who, who, who hears that this, he will be a joy and a delight? Many will rejoice because of his birth. It sounds like it's Jesus, doesn't it? It sounds like our Messiah never having anything fermented drink. He's pure. I want to read in context this morning. This is actually not the story of Jesus' birth. This is the story of John. John came before Jesus. He was uh, known as John the Baptist later because he kept insisting that people should repent and be baptized as a sign of repentance. This is what the word says. It's in Luke 11, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. I'm just going to read it. You don't have to turn there. You can, but you don't have to. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing at the right of the altar of incense. He was a priest. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name John. Here's the verse. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring back, will be brought back to the Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of, here's Elijah, to turn hearts of the fathers to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? Now, I want you to, a couple of key words that pop out here is this lordship idea. Last week, we talked about you are light, but it's light in the Lord. That's the curios, the reign, the rule of Jesus in your life. What Paul talks about in the second half of Ephesians is about the lordship of Jesus. It means that we serve a master. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And so here we have this story. And this is, now this is pretty comfortable for most churches unless you enjoy alcohol. And this is it's like, what? He never had fermented drink or wine, you know. But if, but if a lot of folks in church love this verse, the John, that's our model. That's, that's the guy that we look to. But you'll remember that John came before Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus' interaction with alcohol. You may have heard this story. Uh, I want to uh, share it with you. I love it. It's a beautiful little, little um, narrative, and uh, you've heard it before, but I want, to, I want to read it together. If you can turn it if you want. It's on 737 of our Bibles, if you use one of ours. And this is what the story, this is the story, Jesus' first encounter that we have recorded with alcohol. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. Check it out. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are at a wedding. When the wine was gone, the mother, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, right? And Jesus said, dear woman, why do you involve me in this? My time has not yet come. His mother says to the servants, whatever he says, do it. Okay, that's a good command for you and me, by the way. Whatever Jesus says, just do it, <laughs> all right? This is what, nearby stood six stone water jars, and 
the kind that were used for Jews for ceremonial washing, right? And they were holding 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the very top. Here's, a, here's something that we're going to see today. To the very top. And when he then told them, now draw some water out and take it to the chief of the banquet. He's kind of the head chef, the big honcho, the party thrower, right? He's the, the carnival director. He's the man in charge. And so they fill these buckets of water all the way up, 30 gallons. I don't know how big a 55-gallon drum. I mean, it's a pretty big thing. And then they fill it tip, tip, top with water. And he says, now draw some out and take it over to the main dude to have him taste it. Okay? And, and they're doing this. They're just being obedient in what they've been called to do. They did so. Verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew where the water came from. By the way, that's interesting to me. Then he said to the bridegroom, right? He's the dude who's throwing the party. Everyone else brings out the choice wine first, and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you save the best until now. This is the first of Jesus' miraculous signs that he performed in Cana in Galilee. And he thus, check it out, revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him, right? The first look we get at Jesus. Now, you, you can imagine he's about 30 years old at this point because that's about, you know, his ministry lasts about three years with his disciples. He teaches them for three years. And he's around 30-ish years old. And he's at this wedding party. He's been invited. He's hanging out. And his mother knows, wait a minute. I just want to be real for a second. My wife, would be really happy with Jesus in the house <laughs> because she would have had good wine all the time. And you say, well, that's crazy. Why would you say that? They were just at the port. Listen, there was something in Mary that she knew. Hey, you're out of wine? Talk to my son. It's the best, <laughs> you know? We got that old dingy well out back. Woo, it's been good stuff all these years. What? Don't believe me. You might say, well, wait a minute. When they tasted it, it was water, but it tasted like wine. I've seen some people who, who believe that there could not possibly be fermented drink in there. And then they say, now, wait a minute. This is Jesus. It's not fair. He's holy. He's blameless. He's sinless. And I say, yeah, he is. So it must have been that the water tasted. The word actually says it was changed. As a matter of fact, the dude who tasted it, the word is beautiful. This is the choice wine. The word is beautiful. He says, ah, oh, now this is the good stuff. You've been to a wedding party before? I remember that old trick, right? You bring out the good stuff early, and then you get the really nasty stuff out later. This resonates with me. And this guy says, no, wait a minute. This party's different. You saved the best till last. There's something that's excellent, that's beautiful in this wine. I believe that he changed it. I was at a wedding one time, and I was sitting there looking at the crowd, and I was just thinking, oh, Jesus, how does this even work? And I remember that Jesus loves a wedding. Do you remember that? He loves it. He loves life. He loves the good gifts the Father has given. He celebrates them. 
And uh, here we have this story in Cana. By the way, is it interesting or not? You decide, is it interesting or not? That the, the chief taster, the guy who ought to know where all the good party stuff is, doesn't know where this stuff came from. He's like, I don't know what happened. But these lowly servants, these guys whose only job was to wait tables with towel on their arm, their only job was to serve those who were so privileged and above them, had got to see the miracle of God. That's cool. Because they knew that was just water a minute ago. God reveals himself to the lowly, to the humble. That's a consistent story from Scripture. So here we have Jesus' first interaction with alcohol. Interesting, isn't it? Now, you go, okay, don't make too much of that. I won't. We'll move on. Check this out. Jesus preached about alcohol, as a matter of fact. Push that next one for me, if you would. Here you go. Jesus was given this great sermon. Now, this sermon happens to be about new life in Christ, this, the Son of Man that's coming. And this is what Jesus said when he referred. This is back in the Gospel of Luke, by the way. He says this. He's given this sermon on being born again, being new. And he says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Isn't that interesting? You read this at its face value. What does it say? I'm just making a point here. He's saying this, something is happening in new life in the same way it happens with wine. Do you think when he used this illustration that the audience he was speaking to knew how wine worked? Do you think that they knew automatically, you know what, Jesus, you're right. If you pour new wine in the old wineskins, those things are going to burst. And guess what happens? You lose the wine and the skin. He says, no, new wine gets poured in new wineskins so they can withstand, it can stretch, it can change. What's happening? It's fermenting. I mean, that's what's happening. That's what causes the strain, the change, the transformation. Now, Jesus is making a different point, but my point is, He's using it as a point of illustration, isn't he? Jesus preaching. And he's like, you know, just like when we make wine, you have to have new wine skins. So this is what Jesus taught about, um, about wine. As a matter of fact, if a little bit later in, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, again, push that next one for me. I think this is in 7, yep, 33 and 34. Here's Jesus' own story. Now, I'll remind you again, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect God-man. He is the only one that's qualified for his position. No one else has come before or since who is like him, and he died for your sins and for mine. You'll remember the story of John the Baptist early on, and this is Jesus after he's asked, are you the one to come, or is there someone else? Because John is in prison at this point, and this is what Jesus says. John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking wine, and you have said... That man has a demon. I want to remind you about John's ministry, this non-fermented drink guy. He stood out in the wilderness, and he ate locusts, you know, bugs. And he preached, repent. As a matter of fact, when John would preach sometimes, and some people would show up that he was just offended by, he would say, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee the coming destruction? By the way, those people were religious folks who had all the answers. You see, John was a radical. And Jesus said, this man came, neither eating nor drinking, and you say he has a demon. 
And then Jesus says this of himself. The Son of Man came, both eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Huh? You, you tell me, is he talking about himself here, Jesus? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you have called him a glutton. You know what glutton is? Can't get enough? Eat, 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 right? And there's the word, drunkard. It's the same thing that Paul's saying. The accusation, don't be that way. Now, do you think this was a fair accusation against Jesus? Because why? What was the offense? He sat with people where they were. He partook in meals with them. He had wine or other fermented drink. He wasn't John. He was Jesus. And he did things that would frustrate people, would astonish people, and they were offended by. And they would start calling him names and judging him. Jesus said, these are the dichotomies, you see. And this is what he's saying. He's, he's comparing himself to John. He asked them the question, what did you come here to see? So we have this witness from Jesus' own mouth that seems to indicate, and you know the stories, he was the one accused of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners. By the way, can you think of anyone worse than a tax collector to sit and have a meal with? That would be a hard one to explain to your friends, even today. Jesus' own uh, story. So I want to move now to what Paul teaches, because here we're studying Ephesians, and this, and this is the, the word uh, that Paul um, has taught. And a couple things that I want to show you about. So we've got these two dichotomies I want you to see where um, Paul says, don't be a drunk. Don't be drunkenness. Don't, don't be in drunkenness. And I believe that that is a standing order to believers in Jesus, the saints, the holy ones of God. Here... Paul, when he's writing to young Timothy, Timothy is a, a young leader. Remember, we talked about him earlier in Ephesians as well. Um, came to faith at a young age. He, he, he writes to him and he says, in qualifying leaders, this is what he writes. Now, the overseer must be above reproach. By the way, Paul says being, wanting to be an overseer in the church is a high calling. It's a big deal and you should desire it. But he says, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, that's a good qualification, isn't it? That temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, and not quarrelsome or a lover of money. Okay? And we use that here at Family Bible Church as we discern who's called to leadership. But here in the middle of the requirements, Paul says, you can't be, he says this about being, uh, being a drunkard or being, um, what am I trying to say, inebriated? It disqualifies you from leadership in the church. That's a fact. So we have these kind of, you feel this tension building. You feel that? I want to challenge you this morning to consider a biblical view on alcohol. I think we can fall off either side. Check it out. Later on, he writes, deacons. Deacons are table waiters. They were appointed whenever uh, the apostles had worn out. There was too much to do, and they needed to appoint other helpers. And they appointed deacons. There's not a, they served with elders in the church. And it says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine. There it is again. And not pursuing dishonest gain. There's the greed thing again. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith. There's a teaching with a clear conscience, right? So these are, again, faithful men 
of God. By the way, right after that, I don't think I have it, I don't, but it says women likewise, okay, deaconesses likewise. Here, in the book of Titus, Titus is another pastoral epistle. Paul writes this way, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, and not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, Paul says it disqualifies you from leadership in the church of God. So there are these risks in it, but there is also this freedom, isn't it? Isn't that what it says? All right. We're going to turn now to some other of uh, Paul's teachings. So Timothy apparently was a real zealous dude, right? Um, you'll remember John was that way, and Timothy's this real zealous dude. Well, Timothy has apparently, it's, it's arguable, but he's like only water. Like he's like the purity guy like Peter was. You remember Peter said, I'm not going to touch that. No way, I'm holy. And so Paul actually writes. So uh, there's two times in Scripture that it's used this way, but Paul says, Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine for your stomach and for your frequent illness. So Paul believes that a little wine isn't a bad thing, even for Timothy, who apparently is just dead set to drink water only. You'll remember the story of the Samaritan on the road. The Samaritan, whenever he's come and rescued, he's got wounds, flesh wounds, and it says that there was an antiseptic purpose that they poured oil and, wine, and uh, um, alcohol or wine for men to drink on his wounds to heal him. He may have had a taste, I don't know right? So here's, here's this other application. Turn here with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 14. And I'm just trying to give you an overall look. I think it's something that we can, we so easily take this kind of cop-out thing uh, toward this topic, and we don't really consider what the scripture has to say. Romans 14, starting in verse 10, this is uh, what Paul writes. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother? By the way, remember earlier what Jesus' accusation was. I came eating and drinking, and you call me a drunk. What's happening is he's being judged by other people. He says this, you then, why do you judge your brother or why do you look down on your brother? For he will all, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God, right? That what the word is saying here is that everyone will ultimately be accountable to God. And it's no different for believers in Christ that our, our first motivation, and Paul's going to make a point of this in a moment, should be that we will stand before the holy God and give an account for our behavior. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, Paul says in verse 12. Therefore, let us, not, let us stop passing judgment on each other and instead make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in their brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food in itself is unclean. He's going to turn the corner here with us. Um, but if anyone regards something as unclean, listen, for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, does not your eating, do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Man, there's a word right there. Do not allow for you to consider, uh, do not allow for what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, listen, but of righteousness, of peace, of joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. He's saying when we are serving God in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit, we are pleasing both God and men. 
Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause a brother to stumble. I want to read on with me, which, if you would. So whatever you do, believe about these things. Keep between yourself and God. Bless is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because in his eating it is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now that's a whole mouth and head full of stuff. But what Paul is basically saying is that if you're, whether, what, no matter if you have the ability to do it or not, if it's causing someone else to stumble, it is not good. He says it's not love, right? So all of a sudden now we have this responsibility to consider others as well as ourselves. He actually says that if you have come to a place in your life where it is not okay for you, it is not okay for you. And that's true. But he, in the same way, says, if you come to a place where it is, okay, it is. Because nothing in and of itself is unclean. He asks us to always consider the other people. As a matter of fact, and this will be our last, I think, big um, chunk here. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, um, he says this, the same kind of an idea. He says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eating anything sold in the meat market without, or eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord, everything is, he's saying the same thing, everything is pure. And before God, it's, it's all clean. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal, check it out, and you want to go eat whatever is put before you, sounds like Jesus, without raising concerns or questions of conscience. But if they say this has been sacrificed to an idol, then don't eat it for the sake of the man and for your own conscience' sake. For the other man's conscience, I mean not yours. For why should freedom be judged by another's conscience? But if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, here's a key word, why am I denouncing it for, for something that I thank God for? Key concept, 31. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of others. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so here he's saying that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, right? But whatever you do, (laughs) do it for the glory of God. That means that if in the middle of it, you can't glorify God in it, then you ought not be doing it. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a reality that God is everywhere. And if in that moment you're like, oh, I wish I was hidden right now, it's probably not glorifying to God what you're doing. And that includes consumption of alcohol, includes other, other things in life. It's not just that. It's the places we try to hide. We talk about that a lot at uh, Family Bible Church. All right, so we're going to wrap up. Go back to Ephesians if you're uh, still with me. Turn back to Ephesians, uh, and we're going to do this last couple verses. So in 18, Paul says, don't get drunk. It leads to uh, wastefulness, right? Instead, and here's what he says to put on. He says, put off drunkenness. And there was the little survey, the biblical survey. Is it permissible? Is it allowed? Is, are we supposed to be totally? What does it have to do with spirituality is the question. And he says, put off drunkenness, right? And instead, verse 19, 
uh, I'm sorry, 18, be filled, there's the word, with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. There it is again, in the name of our Lord and uh, Savior Jesus Christ. So Paul juxtaposes these two things. He says, be no longer drunk, church. That's who he's writing to. But instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be, be overwhelmed. It means to be drowning in God, right? And he says that we can be filled by singing psalms, I want to say. These are scriptures set to music, right? By hymns. These are, these are like uh, m- uh, musical things that are plucking. You know, like Matthew did this morning for us up here, plucking. There used to be a harp. Now it's a guitar, right? Strong instrument. And spiritual song is a spontaneous outpouring of praise for Jesus Christ who has done so much for us. And Paul says, church, you should be filled with this in your life overwhelmed with God's presence. And he says, always giving thanks to the Father. Now check it out. In the name, make music in your heart, he says, from the very center of your being. And this is where we're going to end this thought today. Because what happens for a lot of folks, and I ask the question, what does drinking have to do with spirituality? But for a lot of folks, um, the reality is that they are working. And I mean, I... (laughs) from an empty heart. It's not so much that there's outpouring. You've seen today, I hope you've seen from Scripture, and I would love to talk to you about this, but you've seen today that it's permissible, right? But fundamentally, there's a heart issue going on. And fundamentally inside of us, we should be pouring forth praise for God, our Creator, giving thanks to Him in everything. That means that that wedding feast, when that guy said, that was the most beautiful wine, the natural response would be to praise God for it. But for some of us, when we go to have a glass of wine or a fermented beverage of any kind, it's not what's pouring out of our hearts. It's not from a heart of thankfulness. It's it's not from an overwhelming joy in the Lord. But we're trying to pour something in. Do you know what I'm saying? We're trying to mask that pain. We're trying to cover up that sin. We're trying to run from the holy God who is everywhere. We're trying to flee and not embrace. We're We're not able to give thanks because we're masking, we're covering, we're hiding in alcohol. And Paul says, this is not fitting for the church of God. I hope you can see the difference here. I mean, I really want us to take a mature position on this so that, by the way, it said earlier that we don't create a stumbling block for others. You know what's funny about the church to me? You know what's funny about the church? Every time I hear someone talking about being a stumbling block for someone who doesn't know Christ, they assume that by drinking, they are a stumbling block. As someone who is outside of the church, I would see it and I saw hypocrisy. Fakers. You tell me on Sunday, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls who do. I see you Saturday night, man, you're drunk, you're smoking. That girl, she's chewing tobacco. 
We live in Highland, it's true. <laughs> it's hypocrisy, church. Paul says, don't be a stumbling block. Your abstinence could be as much of a stumbling block to an unbeliever. Your self-righteousness could be a stumbling block. So I'm going to ask us to consider this. And I, I know it's a weird, hard, heavy lesson today, but I want you to consider if you choose, have you discerned why you do or don't drink, smoke, chew? Is it for the glory of God? Is it an outpouring of a thankful heart? Or is it something else? Uh, please join me in prayer this morning. Father God, I just thank you so much for the way your word is alive for us. I thank you so much for the way that you move through your spirit's power. I thank you, Father, for the encouragement of saints, those songs and psalms and hymns of joy, stories of a conquering hero who has overcome the grave, and yes, even our sin. And Father, for those today who are here and who don't know you, I pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, they would be nudged closer, that they would be given eyes to see and ears to hear this great and glorious gospel of a son who would come, set with tax collectors and sinners like us, and then die for our sin. Father, in everything, I pray we would glorify you. And if there are those today here who are hiding in alcohol, who are stuck in their sin, who aren't living, living from this thankful heart, Father, I pray you would heal us in those places. I pray that you would be right in the middle of the struggle, showing us the way forward, getting us whole hearts, whole lives that are glorifying to you. And then for everything that's beautiful and right and glorious and precious, and, and celebratory in this world. I pray that we would join you in celebrating it, praising the Father for the great work he has done. May uh, you be glorified in everything as we are conformed to your will and your spirit in this world. Give you praise and thanks in Jesus' mighty name today. Amen.